We would like to welcome you this morning to Mission Bible Fellowship as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. Let us go to the Lord and pray this morning before we get started. Father, we, we humbly come before you. And we thank you. We thank you for the fathers that you placed. In our lives. And we thank you for. Lord the sacrifices that they've made. For their children. Lord this morning we. We acknowledge you as our Heavenly Father who can give us things that our physical fathers can't give us. We thank you for the gift of salvation. And we thank you for your many blessings and your mercies that you bestow upon us. And Lord, we come this morning to worship you as our Daddy, as our Father. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, as we examine our lives, as we examine our church, to make sure that we are being what we claim to be, a Bible-believing church. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, and I ask for your filling of the Spirit of God, that I might speak your truth. Help us as fathers, Lord, to raise our children in godly homes. God, you've bestowed upon us a task that is very difficult. And we ask, Lord, that you would impact the lives of these kids that you've given us. That you, Lord, would draw them to yourself. That they might know Christ and Him crucified. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, last week, if you remember, we looked uh, to our church name, Mission Bible Fellowship. And we began with missions. We wanted to make sure that that we as a church, as individuals within the church, are being mission-minded people within this church. And so last week, we looked at missions. We looked at how Christ wants us to be involved in missions, starting right here in our hometown of Seeley Lake. We saw how Christ changed that demon-possessed man by healing him physically, but not only physically, healing him spiritually, giving him life, giving him direct authority. Christ, to proclaim the great things God has done for him in his life. You remember that man, he he begged God, he pleaded with God as if he was a king to let him follow him and to, to serve with him wherever he went. And Christ said, no, stay right where you're at and proclaim the great things God has done for you to this people. So we saw a picture of missions within the hometown of this man. But this week we're going to address the second character of our church name, which is Bible. Mission Bible. We want to be mission-minded, Bible-believing here at Mission Bible Fellowship. 
Just how can a church stand up and claim to be a Bible-believing church today? What does it even mean to be a Bible-believing church within the culture in which we live in? Well, I hope this morning to show you the meaning of what it means to be a Bible-believing church is and encourage you all to stand firm in your faith, to stand on the Word of God, not only as a church, but as witnesses of what God has done and that is in our lives as individuals. Now we want to make sure that we're truly a Bible-believing church this morning. So this morning, if you will, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 17. You know, the world we live in, and for many generations now really, has been fighting absolute truth. They've been fighting that the Word of God is absolute truth. That the Word of God can be reliable, dependable. We see attacks from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelations. We have pastors and professors and churches and people and universities all across America that are trying to discredit the truth of God's Word. The question is, how do we deal with that? How do we handle that? How do we stand against that? I heard a comment in this fashion said, We are indeed a Bible-believing church. However, we offer a different understanding of the Bible than biblical inerrancy fundamentalist churches. We understand that the Bible is both human and divine. We completely affirm that the Bible was inspired by God, but we also affirm that the Bible is a human document people, not God wrote the Bible. Now that comment should stir your blood this morning. There seems to be missing something in these, this person's understanding of bibliology, their understanding of the Bible, the understanding of the inerrancy of Scripture. And so we want to take a quick look this morning as we get started into the context of 2 Timothy as a book. It will help us understand the whole. It will help us understand what's going on here. And so we'll begin by looking again at the, the, the context of 2 Timothy as a whole and also the context of chapter 3, what's taking place here. Many people look at this letter they see its name first in 2 Timothy, and maybe they come to the conclusion that Timothy wrote this letter. But in all reality, Timothy didn't write this letter. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. This was a very personal letter. A letter that was written to Timothy by Paul in a personal manner. We know Paul thought highly of Timothy and even thought of him as his beloved faithful son in Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this very reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He was thought of as Paul's beloved child in the Lord. 
While Paul thought a lot of Timothy, one of the most important things that we need to understand about 2 Timothy is that Paul here, if you remember, is writing this letter, so to speak, on his deathbed with anticipation that the end is coming. Paul is most likely in his second imprisonment in Rome as he writes this, on trial possibly headed to execution. 2 Timothy 4.16 shows us that, that he's already had to defend his, his self once. And the Greek word that's used there in the defense carries the idea of a court of law. And so we have Paul writing this letter to Timothy with urgency. Knowing that his death could take place at any moment. And that this could be the last of the last of his words to Timothy. And so when we read this passage today, we, we don't just need to read it in the context of our culture, but in the context of what was happening in the life of Paul and Timothy at this time. Now let us take a look now at the context of chapter 3. Here in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, we can really break this chapter down into three main sections. Number one, we see an explanation of the future. Verses 3, 1 to 9. He, he warns that, that, listen, Timothy, difficult times will come. And then we saw this morning as Lauren read that, that we will see men will be lovers of self, boastful, arrogant, prideful, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding, form to, holding to a form of godliness yet denying its power. And then the second thing we see is an example of the past. Verses 10 to 13. He says, he says you saw all that I did and how God rescued me. And then he warns them, be ready to be persecuted yourself, Timothy. He wants us Christians to understand that in these last of these last days will come a time in which persecution will reign out in the church. You will be mocked, you will be blistered for being a Christian. And he's warning. I've been through these things, he says. But you yourself need to be ready. And then thirdly, we see an exhortation, which is where our passage falls in, an exhortation for the present. And so, because all of these things are going to happen, Timothy, he says, make sure you are faithful to the Word of God. Answer back to the schemes of the devil with truth. The truth of God's Word. And so... That's what we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at Paul's exhortation to Timothy in the present time. How to deal with things in the end time when people began to persecute for the sake of Christ, when people become ungodly, and how should we handle that? This morning I think that we are living in these times. I think we're living in these times of the last of the last days. We see these things happening more and more as we grow in our faith. You know, I was saved in 2001. And it's amazing the transition that's taken place over the last few years as I've been a Christian. 
You know, when I became a Christian, I shared the gospel all the time and people were hungry. They accepted Christ. They wanted to know the Lord. And now what I'm finding is that they don't want nothing to do with Christ. They don't want no gospel. They don't want no salvation. They don't want nothing to do with God. And it seems to be people are getting harder and harder. So how do we handle that as individuals and as a church? While we are removing God from about every aspect and His Word from every venue possible and even from the churches today, how do we deal with this? He said that we need to be ready. We need to be ready to give an account. We need to be ready to understand the Word of God, to stand on the Word of God and His truths. And so we must remain faithful to God's Word and hold it as absolute truth while leaning on it daily in every area of our lives. I brought a few points that I hope will help us understand what's going to take place in this, these few verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to help us be a Bible-believing church as we move forward as a Bible-believing individuals. Because the reality is, is God could use you in your workplace. God could move you from this place to another place. And we need to be ready to stand on the Word of God so that we can give people hope and encouragement. Well, let's look at the first three points that I want to look at. Number one, we must understand God's words are inspired. Secondly, we must understand God's words are profitable. And thirdly, we must understand God's words are enabling. Let us read our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It reads this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for all good work. Number one, we need to understand God's words are inspired. Here we see that Paul, knowing what could happen to him possibly in his own death, he wants to make it very clear, very passionately instructing Timothy that no matter what happens, even when those difficult times come, brother, which they will, he speaks of it in 3.1, Paul wants to make sure that Timothy knows that all Scripture, listen, is inspired by God and worthy of keeping a hold of. The Greek word for Scripture is graphe. The word was commonly used within the early church, not to speak of only the Old Testament, but also of God's newly revealed word, in what we know today is the New Testament. You know, many times you'll quote this verse to somebody and they'll say, well, that, that deals with the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Well, no, we, we believe all Scripture is inspired by God, both old and new. And we see that in things like 2 Peter 3.16. He uses a different word. Grammatia, heros grammatia, means a sacred writing. Now this refers to the Hebrew Scripture, but Paul doesn't use that word here. He uses something that intertwines in what he was writing down as the authority of Scripture. 
I think Paul was not only referring to the Old Testament, but anything that God spoke in which was all included in the New Testament. I like how John MacArthur says it. He says, Scripture, first of all, and above all, is from God and is about God. His self-revelation to fallen mankind from Genesis to Revelation, God reveals His truth, His character, His attributes, His divine plan for the for redemption of man whom He made in His own image. Timothy would be needing to defend his faith due to moral corruption which would come about. And let me tell you this morning, we need to be ready to defend our faith about a moral corruption which will increase and drive our culture away from God. How can we do that and be a Bible-believing church? He wants us to understand that every last word in the Bible was God's truth and that we can stand firm on it. All Scripture is inspired by God. Your translation may show something different. Lauren read, I think, from the NIV this morning. The New American Center says all Scripture is inspired by God. The ESV reads all Scripture is breathed out by God. The NIV reads all Scripture is God-breathed. The King James says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Whatever one of these verses you are using, we should understand that all the passages that we hold today in this book are given by the very breath of God to man written down. It's a divine book written through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We see several places in Scripture that really support the idea that that the Word of God is not from man but from God. We see in Matthew 4.4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Luke 1.70 says, As He spoke by the mouth the holy prophets of old. So it's one thing to affirm that the words written in this book are from God, but it's another thing to be convinced within your very heart this morning that these are really, truly the very words of God given to you and to me as the final revelation. Nothing needed. We don't need another book, the Book of Mormon. We don't need to add to it or take away from it. It's the Word of God. And it's given in full. You may be here this morning and say, well, you know, Pastor, I'm not really convinced that, that these are the very words of God. I'm not convinced that there's no errors. And the reality is that I can't convince you of that truth. That's the job and the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So listen, when you go out into your workplace and you go out into your daily life and you begin to share scriptures with people, with individuals, and they reject it, they say, that's just a book written by men. Understand, they can't understand it. Because they're spiritually appraised. If you're here this morning and these things seem foolish to you and you're not convinced of God's words, that they're breathed of God, then maybe you need to evaluate where you are in your faith. Evaluate your salvation. Maybe check your faith to make sure God has truly regenerated your heart and given you a love for the Word of God, that you have a passion, a fervent passage to stand on 
2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you indeed unless you fail the test. You see, we have plenty people in our day and in our culture that say with their mouth they are Christians, but they don't believe the Word of God. They teach it differently. They don't hold to an infallibility of Scripture. It has no impact in their lives. They take certain facts and hold tight to them, but when they're pressured with Scripture, they throw the legalistic card. They talk about the love of God, but they don't talk about the holiness of God. They talk about the grace of God. Those things are important, but they don't talk about the wrath of God. Oh, they talk about the mercies of God, but they don't talk about God's view on marriage, the order, the gender, one woman, one man relationships. I want to make it very clear that the teaching of the love of God is just as important as teaching the lust of the flesh. God doesn't like it. He's against it. And it's not a gift of His desires. The teaching of the grace of God is just as important as the greediness of man. We need to know that we're greedy people so that we can rely on the grace of God. Teaching on the mercies of God is just as important as teaching that man is sinful and in need of a Savior, unable to save himself. No works, no merited favor can get man anything. Teaching the mercies of God and all of those things are important, but we can't negate the rest of Scripture. It says all Scripture is God-breathed, every single word, and not the love of God is more important than the sin that we have in our lives. It's all the Word of God. Every word, and we can't hold any of it back if we're going to be a Bible-believing church. We can play with God's words... We do it all the time. I mean, at least I can speak for myself. We play with it. I believe we're all guilty of it. We take the good, we leave the bad. We take the, the comforting and cast out the discomforting. We take the things that we want to hear and really hide ourselves from the things we don't want to hear. Because that's in our heart. We're sinful people. Saved by grace. This book is God's way of communicating with us as individuals. It's spoken from Him. And we need to live like God is really talking through His Word. Are we seeking this book in our decision-making process as a church? In our lives as fathers to our children? Do we rely on every word of this book to direct us in our decision-making process? Just like Paul is speaking out of personal concern, so we need to speak out of personal concern today for one another. We need to encourage one another that there is hope, there's goodness in knowing that every jot and tittle was inspired by God. It's God-breathed and useful. We sure seem to be living in a culture in which Paul is referring to in verses 2 to 5. But just like Paul was telling Timothy, knowing that, that he would be going through these hard times, 
So He's speaking to me and He's speaking to you so that we can understand that all Scripture is God-breathed, both new and old. It's all inspired and we must follow its instruction, not shying away from it. Because maybe someone doesn't like it, or maybe somebody doesn't want to hear it. Maybe somebody doesn't want to know this. But does that negate our responsibility to be honest with individuals? To be honest with each other? To call sin, sin? You know, in our culture, it's not popular. It's not politically correct to call sin, sin. But Paul knew Timothy was going to be going through this. He knew we were going to be going through it. And God knows what's best for His people. He knows what's best for their needs. And that's why He has given us written form that, that for generations has been faithful to us. God's Word is inspired and that should inspire us. Secondly, we must understand God's Word are profitable. What does it mean to be profitable? Well, the Greek word means to have value, to be useful, to be beneficial. And so we see that, that the word profitable is describing the word noun. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this. What is the Bible profitable for? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it fortune? Is it happiness? Is it nice vehicles, nice cars, nice houses? Is it all of these things that, the, all, that we see on TV that says, hey, just buy this and you can have a happy life? Is that what the Bible is profitable for? No. Here Paul gives us four main uses of Scriptures and tells us what it's profitable for. He says, number one, it's profitable for teaching. Teaching what? Involves instruction. You know, I, I, I grew up as a child sitting under teachers and they instructed me. And you know what? I didn't necessarily want to learn math and English and all those things that I learned in school as a child. I just wanted to go play. But they instructed me. They made an impact in my life, even today. Since Timothy knows that the attacks of these false people are coming, Paul encourages this young pastor to continue teaching correct doctrine, correct living. And people must know the Scriptures so that their lives can be changed. The only way we can do that is to teach people. And I know many of you lead small groups, Sunday schools, and you're teaching, you're proclaiming, you're teaching the Word of God. And that's awesome because I need to hear it. Just this morning, I listened to my pastor back in, in South Carolina preach. A wonderful message on Romans chapter 8. I need the teaching of other people, the Word of God. You need it. We all need it. But Paul knew that these teachers would come. They would water it down because they themselves were looking for teachers that would tickle their ears and give them what they wanted to hear. And as your pastor, I told you the first week I was here, I would never preach to keep my job. And I, ne I never will. I will always, as long as God gives me the ability and allows me to preach, I will preach the Word of God in full counsel. Whether it sits well on everybody's ears or not. Because honestly, sometimes it doesn't sit well on my ears. It hurts. It's painful. Because when I preach these things, i got to make sure that I'm not being hypocritical. And I have to deal with the very same issues that you have to listen to. 
My job as your pastor is to teach the full counsel of God's Word. And while I might not be the best at it, while I might get people's names wrong, while I might get the number of kids you have wrong, I will preach what I learn from all of God's Word. Good and hard. I want to always teach you good, sound doctrine. Good, sound doctrine. We need to all have the drive to stand on this good, sound doctrine that God has given us. What do I mean when I say sound doctrine? Well, I mean what we believe as a church. You know, we, we've gone through the membership class with several people over the last few months. And what we do is we sit down as we go over the major doctrines of the church. What do we believe as a church? What do we hold to in order for you to be a member of this church? Well, number one, we believe that the Bible is infallible without error. Every single word. We believe in the triunity of God. We believe that Jesus, fully God, fully man, that He left heaven, became man, and born of a virgin. And He is the deity of the second person of the Trinity. That He died for the sins of man, and that He was raised to the right hand of the Father. And He's an advocate for His followers. We believe in the Holy Spirit. It's not an it, it's a person. It's the second Part of the Trinity, the third part of the triunity of God. And that He indwells every believer at conversion. And do you know that this morning? That as a Christian, when you accept Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are indwelt with the Spirit of God. He gives you a spiritual gift. He gives by His own will a gift for the building up of the body. Are you using your gift this morning for the building up of the body? Because if we're going to be a Bible-believing church, we have to believe every word. And every word says that as Christians, we've been given spiritual gifts for the edifying of the body. So you have to ask yourself as a Christian, am I using my spiritual gift to serve the church of Jesus Christ? We believe that mankind is sinful. Did you know that this morning? Hmm. If, if there wasn't sin in the church when I got here, it got all messed up. Sorry. Man is sinful. Bible says everybody's wicked. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're unable to save ourselves even by doing anything to merit God's favor. We, we can't work our way to heaven. We as mankind must experience a second birth. We've all been born twice if you're sitting here this morning. Your mother gave birth to you. And you need to be born again, is what Scripture says in John. Man must place their faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus became the sinner's sacrifice before God. We're sinners. We need, a, we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and we have to trust Him because we're sinful. It's what we believe as a church. While salvation is by faith alone, perseverance is the mark of a true follower of Christ. Perseverance means that you're growing in your faith. That God is actually doing something in your life. He's using you and you're growing. It may just be a little bit. You know, we did a garden last year. We ain't done with this year yet. But when we planted that garden, you know, this, this little green bean would grow tall. And this little aggravating green bean would only grow about that high. And then I planted some that, guess what? They didn't even stink and grow. I watered them and picked the weeds and, and all that. And they didn't even grow. But the reality is, everybody grows differently. That's God's job. 
Perseverance is God's job in your life. James says, you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. They don't say, they're just evidence that you've been truly converted. While God's Word is profitable for teaching, secondly, it's profitable for reproof. It carries the idea of rebuking in order to convict of misbehavior and false doctrine. You know, we, we fold as a church, not, not this church necessarily, but as a church in general in this area. We don't want to hold each other accountable because we don't want to be offensive to one another. But I can promise you this. Listen, people don't have a problem telling pastor when he messes up. Amen. I ain't mad at you. Do it. You know why? Because it's not until I understand where I fall short that I can grow. But tell somebody else that, uh, brother, what you're doing is not biblical. You might not ever see that brother again. But you know what? Our responsibility is to help each other. To grow each other. So it carries the idea of rebuking in order to, to convict of misbehaving or false doctrine. It exposes falsehood to sin, erroneous beliefs, and ungodly conduct. Have you ever wondered why people are convicted by the words of God? You know, I've, I've had people tell me, you know, they've invited someone to church, I preach the message, don't even know the person really, and they leave and say, why did you tell them everything about me? You know what, that ain't got nothing to do with me, that's the Holy Spirit convicting your hearts. It's one of the values of, of this Word. That's, that's why we need to dive into it. That's why we need to study it and know it and learn it and grow. It, 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 it teaches us to depend on God to show us where we fall short. I don't have to say you are so and so you are wrong, typically. I just teach the Word of God and God will tell you. This is where you're wrong, He'll say. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's joy in knowing that makes us a better people, better persons. We don't just read the Bible to obtain knowledge. We want to read the Bible for transformation so that we can change, that we can grow, that we can be more like Christ. Thirdly, it's profitable for correction. You see, rebuking points out the sin confronts disobedience. But, but correcting recognizes that a person has strayed from the truth... And we should graciously, lovingly, but firmly try to guide that misbehaving brother or sister back into obedience to the Word of God. We are each one sinful. We fail, but in His grace, 1 John 1 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One man said it this way, When submitted to the Lord's marvelous grace... Our areas of greatest weakness can, through correction, become areas of greatest strengths. How many of us believe that this morning? I hope I do. Because the reality is, is I want to grow. I don't want to be the same man I was this year that I am five years down the road. I don't even want to be the same man that I am now today, tomorrow. I hope that through this sermon that I can grow, that I can learn, that I can understand better, and that I can be changed. We can't grow if we don't know, but God's words are there to show so that we can know. And once we know, then we can grow. Correction. The Word brings correction. The Holy Spirit brings correction. 
You know, I, I sometimes have people say to me, um, things in my office that I never knew about them that they, 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 they thought I did know something. I, sorry. I, I just want to preach the Word. And I hope the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. Because if He does, that means, hey, listen, I need to pay attention. It's not, it's not the pastor that, that teaches the Word of God that's being preached. And if I'm convicted in my heart of something, then I need to pay attention to that. And, and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in my life. That's why it's important for you and for me to know the Word of God. And people in our culture believe in some crazy things. Let me tell you, I mean, whoo, craziness. We need to be prepared to know Scripture well enough as a church and as individuals that we can give them correction. Knowing the book, the chapter, and the verse. You don't, you listen, you don't have to be a, a biblical scholar to know every verse of the Bible. You don't have to come to somebody with the book, the chapter, verse. But if you're going to make an impact, if you're going to make an impact in someone's life without the book, the chapter, verse, it ain't going to happen. Your own ideas, your own thoughts are not impactful. The Word of God transforms people. The Word of God transforms my life. That's what we need. We need to hear God's words. It also says that it's profitable for training in righteousness. Pedia is the Greek word used here for training. It's related to, to bringing up a child. Training for direction. Teaching, instruction, and discipline. This Bible which we hold is not simply to set out on our dashes during the week on our bookshelves. It's our responsibility as parents to train our children from the Word of God. Now, I know many of you don't have children anymore. They're out of the home. That doesn't negate your responsibility as a grandparent. Or even as a parent. To encourage your children. You know, I've watched some of you in this church. Children are gone. They're out of the home. But I'm encouraged in how much you're still invested in their lives through the Word of God. And I like to see when that person becomes transformed. And they see a newness of life and they accept Jesus Christ when they're 40 years old because the Father has been faithful in teaching their kids. You may not have been faithful when you were a father when they were in the home. You can't go backwards, but you can live forward. Let us train up our kids in the way they should go. That's what it's talking about, training in righteousness. Are our children really ready to enter into adulthood? Are they truly, genuinely ready to step into a culture that's going to, to, to eat them alive with heresy? You know, I have five children in my home. There's four last year. Three before that one and two before that one. And I was happy with two. I was happy with three. I was happy with four. I was happy with five. Maybe six is coming. I don't know. But I have five children in my home. And it's our job as parents to train them up in the way they should go. Do they always want to listen? No, they don't always want to listen. We can always love them. Show them the love of Christ. 
Tell them. Train them up in the truth of righteousness. It's a habit that must be learned. And we all fall short in training our children in the home. But we should encourage one another. When's the last time you met with a brother who had kids and said, Hey, how's your, how's your family doing? How is your family devotion doing? How are, you, how are you doing teaching your kids in the home? How about each other? When's the last time you looked at your brother and said, Hey, what's God teaching you nowadays? What's God showing you through the Word of God? What's God challenging you with in your life? Training for righteousness is what we need to be focused on. It's a habit that we must develop. So that our children, they're like, you know, Scripture says they're like arrows in a quiver. What do we do with arrows? Do we just throw them out there? No, we put them in a bow, we draw our bow back, and we shoot them. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as moms and dads, are our arrows ready to be shot out? Because there will be many trees, rocks, stumps in the way to try to stop them from doing what God wants them to do. Scripture teaches that fathers are leaders in the home. And if we think for just a moment that we can place our kids in church, Sunday school, shine on for 30 minutes on Sunday and let them live the rest of their lives through the week, that they're going to be ready to be shot into a community of people who are anti-God, we are sadly mistaken. And we are raising up a generation of biblically illiterate children. We must raise our kids in the home. We do it here as a ministry to the kids and to the parents. But if all they're getting is 30 minutes a week, we're missing it big. There's nothing wrong with Sunday school. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to Sunday school. But what I'm trying to say is that we have a bigger responsibility as fathers this morning to raise our kids. It's not a substitution. Really, the movement began in 1780 by a, a man by the name of Robert Reichs who reached out into the slums as an outreach to children to teach them and train them how to read. And they used the Bible as their textbook. Because the parents weren't doing it. The parents weren't doing it. As a parent, as a father, as a husband, as a dad, my job, training my children should never end. And let me promise you right now, my kids are by no means perfect. If you come over to my house, if you visit me, if, if we get to know each other good enough, you'll know my kids aren't perfect. Cecil knows they're not perfect. He comes over quite often. But he don't have to tell me that because I know. When you come over to my house and there's a door, a hole in the door, guess what? My kids aren't perfect. But I'm not ashamed of it because they're in a training process and it takes time. They're not just perfect people. They don't come out perfect. You don't have to tell a kid to sin. You have to teach them not to sin because they're born in Adam. They were late with Adam. The law of sin is in their life. But as a parent, our work should never end as a father, as a grandfather, as a great-grandfather. You can make impacts in the lives of your people. So we see that 
All God's words are inspired. All God's words are profitable. And lastly, we must understand that God's words are enabling. All this instruction, discipline, training is not just simply to make us keep us busy, but is to see that the man of God be adequately equipped for every good work. Paul wants Timothy, the man of God, to know and to understand that he, in the power of Christ, can stand against these false teachers. He wants him to understand that the rejection of those professing believers that would walk away from godly teaching and the persecution that it would endure as God has set him apart for the task. You see, all this comes together to encourage Timothy, this young man, that by seeing that the Word was inspired and profitable, that it would enable him to do the work God has called him to do. We can stand firm as a Bible-believing church by teaching all of the truth in this book, not skipping it because it might make someone uncomfortable, not skipping because someone might leave the church. Again, our, our responsibility as individuals is not to fill the seats. That's God's purpose. Our purpose is to preach the truth of God's Word. Whether I'm here or somebody else is here, their purpose is to preach the Word of God in every church across America. And too much in our culture, we're trying to draw people by the music, by the lights, by everything that looks so great when the reality is we can get them in and have them an inch thick and a mile wide but they have no biblical literacy and one time one thing comes upon in their life and what do they do? They run. Well this church didn't give me what I want so I'm going to go to that church. That church don't give me what I want so I'm going to go to that church and that church don't give me what I want so I'm going to go to that church and next thing you know they're not going to church at all because they've never been regenerated in their heart because the truth hasn't been preached. We must preach the truth. He's given us an enablement to do that. An encouragement to stand firm on the Word of God. If we're going to be a Bible-believing church, and I believe we are, if we're going to continue, let me say it that way, if we're going to continue to be a Bible-believing church and increasingly become a better Bible-believing church, we need to live our lives by the book. While teaching sound doctrine and complain, uh, not complaining, proclaiming, no, no complaining. And proclaiming Christ to the lost. Paul says it right here, in our, in, right after our text, he says this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We've been given a mandate to stand firm as a body on the Word of God. And Paul sees, listen, he sees this downward spiral of society in the last days that are to come. And so we see a mandate to Timothy and to us as well that we as believers must reject false teaching along with their teachers and be ready to endure in the last days. You know, I say we're in the last last days. I don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back. I have no idea. But everything's in place. We're waiting on His return. And if we are in the last of last days, which we seem to be fitting the Scripture to say we're in the last of last days, if we're not, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we need to be prepared. Don't be a cultural driven church. One that, that, that is driven by society, but one that's driven by God and His Word. 
And let us live up to our name as a Bible-believing church. Continue to stand firm on this Word that God has given us. Being a mission-minded and Bible-believing church. Let us pray.